Hey, before we get started, I wanted to let you know a few things. First of all, Status is now on Spotify. So if you or someone you know listens to their podcast on Spotify, then they can find the show there now. Second, this is the next to last episode of Season 1 of Status. If you head to statuspodcast.com and sign up for the newsletter, you'll be the first to know when Status comes back for Season 2. And lastly, Status is a member of a new podcast network that launches today called The Podglomerate. I'm so excited because this is only going to help me make Status better. And I also get to create this show alongside a group of other supportive podcasters. For now, this just means that you'll see that little Podglomerate logo on the show art, and every episode, you'll hear a bumper before the show, like the one I'm about to play you. And just by the way, today's episode might not be appropriate for all listeners. You are now entering the podglomerate. And I promise you this all connects. But when I was six or seven years old, this is soon after my family had immigrated from the Philippines to Australia, uh, there was a TV show, and he hates when I reference this, called The Lost City of Gold. It was a Japanese anime, one of the very first Japanese animes that wasn't entirely devoted to a Japanese story. In fact, it was actually devoted to the story of Cortez, the Spanish conquistador, and his pursuit of El Dorado. And in that story, uh, a Spanish conquistador and a young conquistador-to-be discover an ancient, mysterious land called Peru that was inhabited by these mythical people called the Incas. Every episode concluded in some sort of um, celebration of uh, Incan culture, Peruvian history. Um, they would talk about the rituals, the, the, um, the Incan temples, how they built it. They would talk about um, the dancers, the costumes. And so ever since then, I've been enamored by Incan culture, Incan history, um, and then just ancient history in general. But for some reason, that just really truly stuck in my imaginations of of, of, of ancient human, you know, existence. And so in the course of getting to know Daniel very, very early on, in fact, I, I, in fact I'm pretty sure he even divulged it while we were just still chatting online, when it was revealed that he was Peruvian, that was enough for me. Honestly, it was enough for me to think, oh my God, I'm fucking an Incan. <laughs> you know, so... In my mindset, I had already sort of imagined him as my Incan warrior, my own Incan princess, and all the horribly ethno-distorted, like, you know, perceptions that I have based off of a Japanese, you know, interpretation of Incan and Peruvian culture, mind you, right? I had already sort of built up this entire mythology about Daniel. This is Status a show about how immigration impacts the people we love. Today, I'm excited to finally be bringing you a story I've been wanting to tell for a while. This episode of Status, as well as the one that I'll release in a couple of weeks, is about an incredible gay immigrant couple I know here in D.C. Michael is Filipino-Australian, and Daniel is Peruvian. I interviewed them in their extremely eclectic home in Washington, D.C., where they live with their dog, America. America. 
I was spending like I typically spent um, every single year since I had moved away from my family. I spent that year back in California with my mom, my dad, my two brothers, and the 40,000 brown people I call my extended family. And as you know, in typical fashion, I was stressed out. And the thing that I usually do when I get stressed out is look for sex. However, at the time, I was in San Francisco with some of my best friends and one thing led to another and I just couldn't quite figure out a booty call in San Francisco. So I decided to set one up when I got back to D.C. And so there I am on my friend's computer (laughs) in a kitchen in the Mission District in San Francisco setting up a booty call. And I found one in this really, really hot Latin guy who didn't actually live that far away from me by the time we got the addresses from each other. How did I meet Michael? Well, it was around Christmas time, and I was stuck with my parents for quite a few days. So I wanted to get something set up by the time I was free, and I went on Manhunt, which was, I will say, it was a still laptop connected. This was uh, the grandfather of Grinder, And even though Michael was in San Francisco at the time, he had his address set up as DC, so we started talking. He said, well, I'm not in town now, but we can meet when I come back into town. And when is that? That is going to be after New Year's. Fine. Let's get together. Come on over. And then fast forward a couple of days. I'm back home in DC. One of my really good friends at the time picks me up from the airport. And as she was bringing me home, I said, hey, I have a favor to ask you. So I'm going to drop my bags. Do you mind turning right back around and dropping me off at this address? And she was like why? And she looked at me and she knew me well enough to be like, God damn it. Yes, fine. I'll give yourself, I'll drive you to your booty call. And so we drive a couple blocks over and uh, I, I arrive, I, you know, I knock on the door, he opens the door and I basically went straight in for the kill. I made out with him almost immediately. Um, he was just so freaking delicious, you know, upon, upon first sight. Just remember, like, opening the door and, we just, and us kissing right away. And it was a good kiss. It was like those kisses that take a while. It was a good kiss. And, you know, we did what we, what we wanted to do. And it was a fun. But then afterwards, he looks over to all my bookshelves. And I had lots of books and lots of comic books. And he tells me that he's an artist and graphic designer. And we start talking about storytelling, just through images. Red clear very, very obvious chemistry. And as I was laying there, though, as I was laying on my back, looking up at the things that were on his walls, looking up at his bookcases, a lot of bookcases. In fact, his bed was surrounded by books and bookcases. Um, I started noticing the spines of the books and realized that he was into pretty much the same kind of stories and books that I was into at the time. And I specifically saw that he was reading Neil Gaiman's Sandman series. So I picked one up, and he said, oh, you went to Neil Gaiman. And I was like, yeah, sort of. I was, you know, started reading him in college, but I never really finished it. And he told me that he had the entire series. So I said, oh, my God, can I, can I borrow this book? So I then proceeded to turn what was intentionally supposed to be like a quick booty call into an entire evening of me just staying there and reading the book. Which, of course, meant that I had to borrow the second one, but then I had to go home so I can go to work the next morning. And so... 
And I would literally go back and forth. I would, you know, borrow the next book, borrow the next book, and of course have sex, you know, like, <laughs> so sort of like a lending library slash brothel. That is the story of like how we met and like our first date. It was like he was the trick that wouldn't live. And eventually I had to marry him because it was awkward. He just wasn't living. So at the time, I was a working photographer. And the way it usually worked was that I would bring a writer with me. So I would take the photos, the writer would get the story and usually get the names of the people that I would take photos of. And it just so happened that two, three nights after we first met, um, I had a gig at the French embassy. And it just so happened that the writer that I usually worked with was unavailable that evening. So I thought to myself, hey... Maybe if I can get him to think this is a date. So he will. He told me, hey, there is this really cool champagne tasting event over at the French embassy. Do you want to come? You know, just put on a suit and a tie, look good and everything. I'm like, ooh, this is nice. This is fancy. This is a good date. And lo and behold, he, dressed, he comes dressed in this adorable little outfit. And I proceed to take out my camera. And I said, I, oh, this is what I need you to do. I just need you to t- take down the names of everyone that I take photos of which he didn't think was necessarily too weird yet until I started doing it. He realized I wasn't joking. I showed up and he's like, oh, baby, I'm so glad that you're here. He kisses me. And then he hands me a pen and a pad. And he says, like, I'm going to take the photos and you catch the names. You start writing from the name on the left to the name on the to the person on the right. And then like, I'm like, OK, I didn't realize this. It's like, yeah, come over. It'll be like only 15 minutes. It's just fine. We just need to do like, you know, the catwalk, whatever. It was not just the cow. We were walking around to the entire event. This was basically, I worked the entire event. And uh, at the end of the night, he turns to me and says, Do you, you, did I just work for you? And that set up a pattern of, hey, you know, so there is this going to be this really cool photo shoot and I'm going to be like shooting all these models. Do you want to come over and check it out? Do you want to come over and check it out? Became... I was the one in charge of going to the um, Whole Foods and getting the food for the photo shoot. And because uh, the fan broke, I had to get like a big piece of cardboard and like wave it. So I was the wind machine for the models. So yeah, a lot of our dates were working dates. <laughs> Why did you stay around for that? Because it was hilarious. <laughs> It was fascinating. I never had met, like, for real, somebody who worked in PR before. He had so much energy. And right before I met Michael, I had just broken up with was, by that time, was my longest relationship. And I basically broke up with this guy because I was incredibly bored. I thought that, that was the, the, I thought that was the exchange that you needed to make. You were in a relationship, you get the stability, you get the two times, but also things are not going to be quite as interesting and you're not going to have as many adventures as you did when you were single. And I thought, oh, okay, this is the trade-off. Well, that's fine. And then, like, towards the end of it, I was like, this is, this is the trade-off, this is not worth it. I am bored out of my mind. So I broke up with this guy. Now I'm single, I'm going to go out, I'm going to party, I'm going to, like, do whatever I want. And within a month and a half, I met Michael and all of a sudden had a boyfriend all over again. But it was the complete opposite from the relationship I was before. Everything was interesting. Everything was fun. So many things were happening. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to take you back a bit to get a better idea of where Michael and Daniel came from and how they got to the point that they were at when they met. I told you before that Michael was Filipino-Australian. 
We'll dive pretty deep into Michael's life in the Philippines in the next episode, but for now, the most important thing that you need to know is that Michael's family fled the Philippines right after the long-ruling dictator Ferdinand Marcos was removed from power. So shortly after the fall of the Marcos regime, my family moved to Australia. So originally, uh, my parents had actually applied to move directly to America. But I was apparently uh, the the monkey wrench in that plan. Um, at some point also, there were these major quotas that started to be implemented, um, you know, during, during the Reagan years. And um, short of amnesty, it became really difficult to migrate, um, to immigrate to, uh, um, to America altogether. By that point, my father's um, oldest sister had um, already fallen in love and married an Australian man. And so she offered um, Australia up as an alternative. Um, and the big attraction there was the immigration process was much simpler. I think it was, you know, you got, I think from the Philippines, at least at the time, you could have we were able to go um, as tourists uh, and then while being on a tourist visa, we could actually apply for permanent residency and then from permanent residency to citizenship. And back then, you only had to be a permanent resident for like two or three years before you could become a citizen, a full-fledged citizen. I think it was decided that the kids would have a better future basically away from the Philippines. Um, in 1987, we packed up our entire lives and moved uh, a family of five to the shores of Sydney, which, mind you, at 1987, had just ended its white-only immigration policy less than a decade prior. Um, So we entered a country that was suddenly awash with ethnics. So we found ourselves, um, you know, living um, with my father's uh, sister for a short while, and then eventually living in a predominantly immigrant neighborhood, um, in the western part of Sydney, um, which you know was always affectionately called the the darkest part of Sydney, in the, so far as it's basically where the most ethnic parts of the of the city were, um, which actually, believe it or not, made it a fantastic place to grow up. Um, yes, I experienced racism for the first time at the age of eight. Um, when, you know, in the middle of a lunch line, um, a young Australian girl came up to me and said that I needed to go back to my country and that I needed to stop stealing their jobs. And all I could think to respond to her was, I'm not trying to steal your job. I'm just better than you at it. I didn't know, quite know how to you know, respond to xenophobia and racism at the age of eight. So I did go back home that day and I told my mom about it and you know, she said, you know what, these Australians, these white people, they don't know how to deal with us. Uh, and then she started telling me, um, actually, at a very young age, she started telling me how, you know, at work in Australia, um, you know, people would second guess her. I mean, she was a practically a vice president, you know, in the bank that she was working with in the Philippines. And she found herself working, um, you know, frac- frankly, as a teller almost, you know, in a much more lower level position. She rose in the ranks um, and even though she was rise, you know, rising, you know, pretty quickly up in rank um, in her company, um, people would continue to stymie her career simply because they didn't think she would speak English well enough, and they would constantly express this surprise that she was as a, she was as articulate as she was. Racism wasn't all that Michael had to worry about in Australia. So you know, growing up in Australia was a uh, you know was was fun. It was also very difficult. It was also the the time in my life when I started realizing that I was gay. 
let's put, I've always been, I had, I've always been effeminate, right? I, I, uh, even growing up in the Philippines, you know, it was clear that I was an artistic child with certain artistic, dramatic, you know, persuasions and a certain flair, you know, um, for the dramatic. And, um, I guess in the Philippines, that was sort of looked upon as, oh, how fun, you know, he can sing a karaoke song better than other kids. You know, that's something that's, you know, that's, that was always managed to be, you know, at, at, at best entertaining. In Australia, however, in a culture that was even more hyper-masculine than the Philippines was, that just proved to be, in some cases, deadly. Not only was I a brown immigrant in a country that was already hostile towards immigrants, but I was also an effeminate kid who didn't want to play sports. In school cultures where playing sports was basically the academic peak of success. You know, for some reason, you know, the academic prowess didn't quite shine as brightly as being an athlete. And so it was difficult, actually, growing up. There was also the time that our involvement in the church started to become even that much more important. You know, I always grew up in a really religious family. Um, we grew up Catholic in the Philippines. And then eventually, as we started to immigrate into Australia and we left our Catholic family behind and then joined our Protestant family in, in, in Sydney, that's when I saw my parents convert, my mother specifically convert wholeheartedly and go from being Catholic to being Pentecostal evangelical Christian. So I found myself in Australia, I found myself living in a school environment where I was uh, in a, uh, excelling and, and succeeding academically, but being constantly bullied because of my lack of athletic prowess, um, found myself then turning more to the church and specifically music within the church as a way of, you know, escaping all of that. Uh, that then became difficult when the church itself started to become also a hostile place. So then I thought maybe, okay, so I couldn't find solace in school. I can't really find solace in, in church. Let's try the Filipino community. Let's try that. At least there, my being an effeminate gay child, I could hide that behind this veneer of being an entertainer. Because in the Philippines, if you can at least sing and act and dance, you know, you can sort of excuse quite a lot of sins just from that. And that worked for a short while until it became increasingly clear that I was never going to have a girlfriend. <laughs> By the time that, you know, it started becoming increasingly clear that, um, that, you know, we probably wouldn't be lasting too much longer in Australia, that we probably needed to move, you know, and move from Australia. Um, you know, it, it was starting to become a place where I was either going to blithely accept that I was never going to belong, or I was going to have to seriously, drastically change something, you know, either about myself or about the situation. Not too much later, Michael's parents' original application to come to the U.S., the one they filed while they were still in the Philippines, was approved. But Daniel had been living a parallel story impacted by a lot of the same factors that affected Michael's childhood. I was an only child until I was 10 years old. That's when my sister was born. They had just recently gotten married, like, and then I was born right away. And... Um, I was the first grandchild on both sides of the family. Um, so I can, it's safe to say I was a very spoiled child. Beyond what like, you get with an only child, I was incredibly spoiled. Daniel had a couple of medical issues as a baby, and that led to him having a pretty sheltered early childhood. I was, it took me a while to like learn how to properly interact with other kids, how to make friends, how not to assume that every single toy in the room was my toy or, or that, you know, I just couldn't just do whatever I want in every situation that there was. This meant that Daniel was pretty socially isolated growing up. Well, I was always a very bookish 
And because I wasn't very good at interacting with other kids and like I will always end up, you know, like sometimes I will hit the other kids or like things will happen with the other parents. I ended up being pushed into like just reading and hanging out with books, which actually made me very happier, very, very happy because I was, a, like I said, I was a very bookish kid. By the time I started going to school, the fact that I wasn't very good at sports, that I prefer reading and all of that. And like the school that I went to was an all boys Catholic school. I hung out with adults a lot of the time. And a lot of the adults that I hung out with were actually my mom and her sisters and my grandmother. So you have a bookish kid who doesn't really know how to play with other kids and is mostly used to hanging out with women, especially older women. I have picked up quite a few mannerisms along the way. My voice was rather high-pitched. I will speak with my hands a lot. So I was always teased for like being effeminate and things like that, which really upset my parents, but they try not to show it too much. They will just say, well, you know, don't do that. Do this. Don't do that. Do this. Like, you know, trying to like give me clues to like how to like deal with things a little bit better, uh, how to be more masculine. But there was one moment in particular that now looking back in time, my mom knew that there was something definitely different about it, about me. We live in a second floor apartment and out of that second floor, you look onto the road and they will always be like the kids in the neighborhood playing soccer on the road. You know, they will like mark with chalk or, you know, where the goal will be and they will out there playing. And it was summer. So like a lot of them, like, you know, they were like, 14, 15, they already had like, you know, nice young man bodies. They would take off their shirts. And I was like eight or nine at the time. And I was inside the house and it was hot. We had no AC. Um, I had taken off my shirt. And my mom tells me to like close the door, close the window because it was very windy and the dust was coming in. So I got to close the window and I noticed that the guys are outside playing soccer. And I immediately, I blush and I cover my chest and I step out. Like I had a moment of not shame. Shame is not the right word, but it's, um, it's, it's a feeling close to shame, but that you feel when you're like, you feel it in front of somebody that you're sexually attracted to, that you find attractive and you find yourself uncovered in front of them. And that's what it was. It was like, they're seeing me and it was like that mix of like shame and embarrassment but also a thrill and my mom noticed that oh and she did not like that a lot at all and that was like that was like the big confirmation that no I was not just a bookish kid with like effeminate gestures like there was something else there so that's how I found out that there was something different about me but I didn't really act on it until I moved to the United States. I could have acted on it a little bit earlier. There was a, a department store near where uh, my parents live that had a little bit of everything. It had clothes, it had groceries, it had books, it had comic books, and I would always go there and I always read the comic books. The manager of the place, at the time I thought he was some very old guy. He could have been, and now looking back on it, he could have been anywhere between like his late 20s to like mid-30s. But he was not like an ugly or a gross guy. I actually thought he was a little bit handsome. 
and he will come over to me and like I always see you reading why are you reading why are you like if you're gonna be here all the time maybe you should work here maybe like you know I should talk to your parents and like see about you doing like some weekend work mopping the floors or something like that and he like started talking to me and trying to like make friends with me and one uh, that time at this time I'm like about 12 years old one time he's like, oh, look, you know, it's like the season has changed. You know, we have all these new swimsuits, you know, like, do you want to buy a new swimsuit? Like, you know, like maybe you can work for a couple of weekends and you can make enough money to buy a swimsuit. Hey, why don't you come into the changing room with me? And like, you know, we can like try these swimsuits on you. And we do that. And he's just looking at me, watching, changing the swimsuits. And I know what's going on because I'm 12, but I'm well enough to know that like that this guy is likes to check me out naked. And that this is not supposed to be happening, but I actually kind of like the attention that this feels good. And then coming out of there, he tells me like, hey, you know, like, you know, next weekend I'm not working. If you're not doing anything, like, you know, I live over here. Why don't you come over and we can hang ice cream and, you know, watch movies or something. I almost went. And the only reason I didn't go is because... With the excuse that I told Kate, my mom, that I was going to hang out with these friends. My mom happened to be friends with the mom of this guy that I told him. And she called. It's like, oh, yeah, my son is coming over. And it's like, well, my son didn't tell me that your son's coming over. And then she, my, my mom was like, so what are you going to do? Uh, I just going to like... Uh. I couldn't tell him, tell her the real reason, of course. And then she's like, well, you're not going anywhere. There but for the grace of God. Lord knows what could have happened to me if I had gone to that house. I have a fairly good idea of what would have happened to me, and I was okay with that. So in a way, I had already embraced the fact that having sex with men was something that was in the cards for me. It was in the future, and I was okay with it. Something that I just couldn't ignore when listening to Daniel's story was how much his bookishness helped him hide his more feminine qualities for a time. Just like Michael's artistic talent kept him safe among his Filipino family. Michael, Daniel, and I talked a lot about how, whether we realized it or not, as young, talented, gay boys, we used our talents and intelligence to protect ourselves from a certain level of danger and to gain a certain level of respect from the adults around us. Which I think is a very classic, particularly, I think, gay male experience. Um, you know, I find in conversations with, with friends you know, throughout my entire life that you know, one pretty consistent thing you know, for a lot of my gay male friends is this idea of becoming of being the best little boy in the world, right? Um, I think we as as gay men, especially those of us who are more feminine, you know, um, than others, um, we become very self aware of how different that makes us, and more importantly, how that kind of difference particularly makes us much more um, prone to being bullied, and we become victims because of it. Um, and I feel like as long as we can distract you know, these bullies or distract these detractors or distract our fathers, distract, you know, our brothers, distract, you know, these people, um, you know, from the fact that, you know, we are effeminate or that we probably are going to end up being gay. If we can distract them with something shinier, something bigger, something else, you know, whether it is a musical aptitude, whether it is, you know, being intelligent, whether it is, 
being something else, being funny. You know, I, I have one friend, for example, who used humor as a as, as a defense mechanism. Um, and he had actually he's basically a comedy writer now. But he, that was one of his things that he did was like he used the ability to make other people laugh, you know, detra- um, distract from the fact that he wasn't athletic and that he was very effeminate as well. I feel like that is, you know, sort of like a classic thing. Probably even more classic than hiding one's own queerness with one's talents is the marathon of self-discovery it takes to recognize and finally come to terms with that queerness. For Daniel, this part of the story happened shortly after his family moved to the United States. Daniel and his family had the chance to move to the U.S. because of the same Reagan amnesties that rerouted Michael and his family through Australia. Daniel's grandmother had overstayed a visa to live in the U.S., and once she was granted amnesty, she was able to sponsor her family to come live in the States with her. By the time that Daniel's family could move to the States, he was legally an adult, and he had the option to stay in Peru. But even his very well-educated and experienced father had trouble making ends meet in Peru. Daniel's father and mother had to pawn their wedding rings at the end of each month just to make ends meet for a while. So Daniel decided that it was best for him to move to the U.S. with his parents. And I think it was like about five months afterwards... I had a job working at Roy Rogers and I would be walking back and forth between like that place and like where I live with my parents, which was about 10 blocks or so on Columbia Pike in Arlington. One time I'm walking and this guy walks by and it was like, I noticed that he turned around to take a look at me and then I keep on walking and then he walks by me again. Like he had, he turned around and he walked with me and he's walking right next to me and he starts having a conversation hey how you doing what's up where are you up to where do you live and all that and we're just chit-chatting and he's like well you know you're really cute so like do you want to come to my place and hang out for a while and of course I don't tell him that by that point I have never even made out with a guy before I'm like and the funny thing is that I knew what was going to happen but he seemed more interested in the fact that he was seducing this latin immigrant and i'm like at some point we're gonna have sex right like i'm pretty much like i know what i want to happen we hook up and afterwards after we hook up he's like so you want to meet again do you want to hang out and i was like yeah sure i mean you know this was a lot of fun it was my first time and i really want to do it again and he was like are you sure i mean it was your first time you didn't feel like your first time it's like well i watched porn before and like there is only so many places that things can go into, so it, was, it seemed very self-explanatory. But like I said, I really like this. And if you know where other people hang out, I will. The um, one thing that like always sticks in my mind about that moment is that when I was a kid, and through like most of my life up until that moment, I was not say terrified but I was scared and icked out by insects roaches spiders all of that that they always gross me out and that night after I hooked up with this guy went you know went to my back to my house I'm sleeping in my room I'm about to get to sleep in my room and I see that there is a roach on the wall and I slam it with my hand like I actually like I have like not in back in Peru my reaction would have been to like make a noise and get my dad to come over and clean it but instead of like even grabbing just a shoe, I actually just slammed the roach with my bare hand. And that had always stuck in my head, like as something that had clicked in my mind. Like, hey, I'm gay. This is the way it's going to happen. I'm going to hook up with guys. I need to find out where the gay guys are in DC so I can keep on doing this. And B, fuck the roaches. 
Like I am done putting up with like these trifling issues in my head. After this first liberating experience, Daniel jumped right into the gay scene in DC. He was having a great time and he was the new guy in town. He was pretty popular. But after spending a weekend partying with a guy he was seeing, he got into an argument with his mother about not letting her know where he was all weekend. In the middle of the argument, Daniel just screamed out that he was gay and he was kicked out of his parents' home for a time. And then my parents, this is the thing, it's a, it's a Latin family, so like, short of a nuclear bomb, you really cannot break us apart. So within a couple of months, my mom stopped being angry with me enough that she would be calling me and she would be checking with me, like, are you eating enough? Are you, are you hungry? Do you need anything? Let's meet over at this place. And then like, you know, okay, well, I will show up and we'll have coffee. It's like, are you ready to change your ways? No, I'm not going to change my ways. And she will be like, well, this is cereal and bananas, and I have a few cans of tuna, and, you know, you can make a meal, and you know how to make pasta, and do you know how to make rice? Okay, here is pasta, and here is rice. So she was really, like, worried that I was going to starve myself to death. But I wasn't going to be able to move back in the house until I changed my ways. Eventually, these food drops turned into regular visits. And eventually, Daniel's dad started to reach out. And then Daniel was invited to family events. They just didn't discuss his sexuality for a while. But over time, his parents got more and more used to the idea. Until eventually, his mom was even comfortable enough to start meeting his boyfriends. And the funny thing is that after we got over the fact that I was dating guys and my mom was meeting these boyfriends, then like the other side of my mom came out, which was I was her firstborn, her only boy child, and no single man was good enough for me. So I never could tell for the longest time if the reason why my mom never liked any one of my boyfriends was because it was a reminder that I was gay or because she literally hated every single one of them because they were taking me away from there. I think one thing that made my it made it easier for my parents to accept Michael was that he was a good kid. He was hardworking. He was always doing all sorts of things like bringing money in the house. So like my parents liked that about him, that he was a go-getter. They like whenever I will tell the stories to my parents that, you know, he's very much in touch with his mom, his dad. He has two brothers. He loves them, calls his mom pretty much every other day. And my mom, oh, well, that, that's a good kid. That's a good son. And then the last one, which is kind of funny, was that Michael was so artistic. And because he was so artistic and flamboyant and his flamboyancy was able to be excused by his artistry. So the fact that he was a slightly stereotypically gay like may put my parents at ease because it didn't necessarily challenge his preconceptions as much. I think if I had brought like a very masculine, you couldn't tell that he was gay type of guy to the house, it would have freaked out my parents more. Like when I brought Michael in, my parents were like, okay, we can, we know how to handle this. So those feminine qualities that Michael and Daniel used to hide, they ended up being the very thing that made Michael acceptable to Daniel's parents. Being the most stereotypically gay person turned out to be the way that he got respect. And this complete reversal of how things worked, it didn't stop with family. It was funny because Michael tells me like when he started working, some of his first assignments had him sent to the Pentagon. And for a while, I think like the, right before he started that job, he thought that he was going to 
he talked with a couple of friends that work at the State Department. It's like, am I going to have to tone it down? Well, am I going to have to change the way I am? And then they got he got the advice from these friends that, yeah, you know, let me look at you. What are you going to wear? You can No, you cannot wear, like, gold shoes. And, and Michael at some point was like, well, like, I could either, like, get rid of all my wardrobe and just dress like an incredibly boring person, or I could just, like, dress and show up just the way that I am. And he did that. He just showed up in his gold shoes and his cape and, like, acting like, you know, like the flamboyant, very over-the-top, like, person that he is. And the older military people love it because to an older military man, a flaming homosexual is something he can understand. But a very masculine homosexual that could serve in the armed forces and pass, you know, without nobody even noticing, that was the thing that he was scared of. I am not a stealthy homosexual. There's no stealth about my gayness. <laughs> There's probably more to be said here about straight men being afraid of, quote, stealthy homosexuals. But I'll leave that unsaid. For now, it's just encouraging to me that career military men at the Pentagon can be disarmed by gold shoes or a cape or some neck jewelry. Status is produced by me, Matt Horton. Music was provided by Camille Baranski, Sferia, Unfinite, Lakey Inspired, and Ben Mitchell. The Status theme song is Bread and Circuses Are Back by Ben Mitchell. And don't forget, sign up for the Status newsletter at statuspodcast.com so you can be the first to know about Season 2. And check out everything about the Podglomerate at thepodglomerate.com. I'll be back with the last episode of Season 1, in two weeks. Talk to you then. Michael Doomlau confirming all stereotypes 24 7. He said slightly feminine, and I was like, that's an interesting choice of words. I modulated, you know.